The Midnight Shift, Dad's Poo Brown Volvo, and just what is and isn't the proper way to do Metworst. So today, we're getting the dirt on the antics of a contrary kid, and he is very contrary, with an impressive family wine, they are impressive, the legacy to which he said, stuff them, I'll do my own thing, and he ended up in the wine game anyway, Dave Lehman. Well, that's a really great idea. I'm going to make my biscuits the same way. And all of a sudden, you've got a regional food story that's just been born. For honey biscuits. And uh, please don't ask me to do it in general. <laughs> and I think we will look back in 20 years' time and say, wow, that was really something. Supported Dragon three times. Mental as anything. The Choir Boys. The Angels. The Divinals. He'd miss the ball. And I have to explain to him, no, you can't re-hit it. I must have <laughs> Great live Yabby event of 1996. Dog in the back of the boat that was being fed meat pies on the way over. Nothing <laughs> awkward about that, man. But please, call me Dave. It's just us. The stories of Barossa told by Barossans. Hosted by the vintage whisperer, winemaker and aspiring actor Stuart Bourne. With wine educator, marketing director and complete new import legend to the Barossa, Amanda Longworth. And why the hell does every Barossan, except me, have a Yabby story? And welcome to David Lehman, winemaker, small goods aficionado and graphic designer. Thanks for coming along, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing awkward about that, Amanda. But please, call me Dave. Perfect. (laughs) Dave... Given that you are a Lehman and obviously there's a degree of living in shadows here when you come from such amazing stock, I always remember you talking to me about wanting to cast your own shadow rather than live in one. You want to tell us a bit about that? Well, part of that is why I'm so fat, because then I cast a bigger shadow. (laughs) (laughs) No, look, I think, you know, there was so much of growing up just... Dad, like, so as a small child, your parents are just your parents, you know. Dad was this dude, he used to garden his jocks and, and all that <laughs> sort of stuff. And there was this weird sort of disconnect between the image of who Peter Lehman was and then the, the family image of, you know, the, the guy who liked gardening, who loved to punt, smoked B&H like, like a train and what have you. And, but it was the way that other people interrelated to both my brother and I. There was always this just assumption that we'd both go into the wine industry and being a bit of contrarian or I guess being brought up as someone who's got a lot of independence meant that I pretty much decided I never wanted to have anything to do with the wine industry but it wasn't because of a lack of enjoyment in it or anything like that I mean you know eight nine ten twelve year olds whatever you just you're more interested in you know you're not thinking about the future you just don't want but from my perspective it was just not wanting anyone to tell me what to do and I've you know it's something I've kept has a pretty strong theme through the rest of my life but so the whole thing about I, I decided I was going to do anything else but like I, I used to love drawing as a kid and what have you so originally I was going to be a cartoonist and then I worked out cartoonists don't make any money and then it sort of evolved to being I wanted to be a graphic designer although that was more of a tag I think what I wanted to be was an illustrator and then by about oh, three quarters of the way through high school, I realised I didn't have the talent, the desire or the uh, the temperament to make money out of doing that. So, yeah, I ended up going into studying design, So, but never got very far through that either. I think I did first year of uni twice with a, with a gap year in between. <laughs> Many of us did. Yeah, yeah, spent a lot of that in the pub. <laughs> Just on that, was there a light bulb moment that made you think, 
the wine industry is me. I think it was probably the first tickle under the groin was um, doing a vintage at St. Howitt's back in 92. And that was just a, a fill-in. I'd sort of done my first year of uni, took a gap year, and, and then it was like, let's go and do something. So that part, first step of the gap year was... I need a job, vintage would be great. I just wasn't anything to do with wine. It was more about getting dollar, dollar, you know, getting the dollar signs in the pocket sort of thing. And, yeah, Dad gave Stewie Blackwell a call and I ended up with a, a night shift in St. Hallett's, which, again, that's where the, the reputation, I guess, or the, the, the surrounding um, aura of being Peter Lehman's son, you know, they, they, they put someone who's got absolutely no idea about <laughs> anything to do with cellar operations, wine or anything, really, on a night shift job running the Red Fermenters. There was just so much assumption that I had any idea what I was doing, <laughs> which was quite succinctly pointed out to me within the first sort of three and a half hours by Pete Gambetta, who was the first winemaker I worked under. And, you know, we've subsequently become great friends, but Ellie was a bastard to work under in those days. <laughs> but, but, yeah. Listen, having worked those night shifts, there must be some good stories that you've got to share with us. Well, I'm assuming that the statute of limitations, you know, 92... <laughs> So, Stewie, no, no suing? Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> Free to run. Yeah, so there were uh, probably the two major incidents that stick in my mind was one, like, we had to do dig out. So you'd, you'd get a list at the start of the night of, you know, one or two fermenters that you had to dig out. So that, I was working predominantly in the open fermenters, but we also had to do pump overs for the potters and or the overhead statics or whatever you want to call them. And then they also had one rotor in there, which everyone hated, but sort of got used reluctantly because uh, it was space. Yeah, the open fermenters, if they didn't get all of their pressing done during the day, you'd, you might have one or two that would push into the night shift. And I remember one night, I just, it was, I had a massive hangover. I was feeling like crap. I had just one dig out to do. And so what you'd do is you'd set up an open throat mono, which is just a screw pump. Oh, it wasn't even a mono, it was just a screw pump. So it's got a big, a receivable bin type thing, and then there's a screw pump in there, and it's got a nice big fat hose, and you just shovel your mark over the we shovel the, the grape skins out of the fermenter over the, the side of the fermenter into the thing and then it'd get pumped into the into the press. The only sort of downside of that is you couldn't actually see what you were doing because you're inside a, a fermenter which has got, you know, sort of six foot high sides mm. and the pump's on the ground on the other side which is even lower because sort of so you can train them and whatever so the, the floor level's lower than the the drain point on the, uh, the fermenter so I've, I've just madly I've started shoveling and you sort of you get a bit of great mark and you put a mark on the wall where the, the pump is but I, I just neglected to do it that time because I was feeling hungover and crappy <laughs> so I just started shoveling away and, and managed to shovel the entire thing and just went for it you know one of those missions I'm, I'm going to empty this I'm going to empty this bugger in about in, in about 12 minutes sort of thing and so I finished and then looked over the thing and I'd missed the pump by about I don't know half a foot so there was a massive big pile of mark on the ground next to the pump so quickly luckily the other advantage of night shift there's no buggers around so I just quickly over the side and <laughs> shoved it all in and I think it it probably wasn't Blackwell but more than <laughs> and then the uh, yeah the second one was I had to uh, do pump overs on the static. You connect to the bottom of an overhead fermenter or a potter, as they were called when I was growing up, and then you'd have a hose that come up over the top, and you'd, you'd be circulating the wine to do the extraction of the colour and the flavours and all that sort of stuff. So I did one of the classics where you hook onto the bottom of one tank and shove the, the other end of the top of the other tank, and pumping over was doing fine. Luckily, that was only about two thirds full, but then went for went for dinner as you do, and we're sitting there eating dinner, and you just hear, "Oh, it's raining." Well, that's no, not raining. <laughs> oh, shit. It's raining red. 
So yeah, that was probably my first job as an unauthorised winemaker to make a blend. And unfortunately, it was a contract wine, and I won't say who it was contract wine for because uh, <laughs> even the statute of limitations <laughs> might not run out on that one. But the, uh, the yeah, the phone call went interstate. This is what's happened, and everything like that. And the answer came back was get the levels back to where they were and never mention this again. So <laughs> I think you got a gold medal for it. So, oh, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Not a bad result. Dave, just looking at, at the Dave, David Franz wines over the years, I've always been intrigued by the packaging, in particular the use of screen printing onto bottles and tissue wrapping. I think that's part of you differentiating yourself from many others early on. You know, what, what was the whole brainchild behind the way you've packaged those wines? Let's say it's it's like a confluence of things. So number one is, you know, it goes back to my desire to be independent, not to rely on anyone else, just, just to have that control within. I suppose part of it's being a control freak, but a part of it's also just, you know, through the process of doing the, the, the ill-fated journey as down the graphic design and what have you. I, I did some work experience at some local print shops and that sort of stuff, and, and I could just see that... Every sort of step when you outsource it, whether you're using a designer, whether you're using a printing or whatever, every step takes time and you're relying on someone else's interpretation of what you want and everything else. So for me, it was number one was about being able to control that process in-house and by myself and not have to worry about relying on someone else. Number two was, I guess, yeah, I mean, it was sort of, I remember, you know, like those um, Portuguese ports, the tawny ports, they always had like that like a painted white label on them and I knew that Lehman's at that stage like on their mentor they had the, the little um, silk screened on or the, the printed on the glass sort of silhouette of dad's face on the mentor so I knew that you know that glass printing was was a thing didn't know anything about it and it was just yeah and part of it was just to do something I don't think it was necessarily I'm going to be unique or anything like that it was just how cool would that be you know it's, it's by saying that I would you know I've done something or designed something with that much thought down the track, <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> unlikely. It's just more. I'm I'm a lot more visceral. I'm I'm very much ooh bright and shiny, <laughs> ooh piece of candy. <laughs> you know, it's just there's no real sort of I guess conscious thought. It's probably more subconscious. But you know, I just think that there's so much. If you trust your gut, you subconsciously like the way my brain works. The subconscious, you know, it's all the subconscious bits and pieces are feeding in there, and then you'll come up with a conscious thought. And I just sort of go with those impulses so it was sort of a bit of that a lot of it was just to be able to have in house so, so each bottle screen printed then yep. plus you wrap it in a print with tissue paper that's right well, that, yeah so that sort of came about the original run was just to screen print the bottles and when we first set it up so the whole system was pulled together for me on my behalf by a bloke called Quentin Falkenberg Quentin Falkenberg and Quentin used to have print masters so what then became CCL and is now whatever it is up there on. But when he was, when I first got to know Quentin, he's where Tanunda Sellers is now, and that used to be the they had the print shop in there. And then they went and built the place across the road that's oh, it's a private residence, I think now. But and then ended up going up and starting print masters up on on um, Parra Road there. But um, Quentin, I just remember asking, you know, Quentin, is there a machine out there that? Like I could screen print straight on the bottles and he managed to find me a machine and help set me up and what have you. So, But unfortunately back then the the inks that we could source in Australia were done by a local company but mm-hmm. there, there wasn't anything that was specifically for glass. So we were using an ink that was designed for metal but what we found was if the bottles had any form of condensation on it, it would wipe straight off. Right. And so then we went to... We, we then found another ink that was 
actually adhered pretty well, but it was just so vulnerable. So mm. it wasn't probably any worse in terms of like what a, a paper label, if you smash that around, it get. But in terms of particularly being in cartons and getting knocked around like that, it used to get damaged so much. So we, we started tissue wrapping them purely to protect the bottles. But then they just, because I was wrapping in a brown paper, it just looked like, it's just like a big brown dildo sitting on the shelf. <laughs> it was just, it was blank because like bottle shops... It wasn't very were, exciting. Well, no. I mean, a bottle shop, if they get a, a bottle of wine that's wrapped, they won't unwrap it. They'll just, you know, people want to buy it as... But, yeah, it was just these big blank things. So one of the girls who worked for me then and is still working for me now, Beck, just said, why don't we just reprint it after we've wrapped it? And I was like, oh, genius. So... So then it came from that, and then, and I guess everything with the packaging and all that sort of stuff has been a sort of a, as you learn something, you just keep experimenting and moving forward, and yeah, it's just it's it's evolved packaging. So you know, there's a few that we've done where we've allowed the translucency of the tissue paper to be part of the packaging, and others where we've just paper and what have you. So yeah, mm. and I guess it's there's always been that. Some people say, why do you do it? And part of it's just because it looks cool. I mean, why do we always have to have a bigger meaning behind something. Sometimes you just do shit because it looks good. It does look good. Yeah. Now, um, obviously, because you're a local boy, and one of the themes that's turning up in this podcast series has been so many people have got a yabby story. And I would imagine that you would have to have a few yabby stories under the belt. You want to share one with us? Oh, look, they're probably... I mean, the whole thing about the best-tasting yabbies are the ones you steal from someone else's dam. We all know that. Agreed. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's like the best-tasting watermelons come out of the paddock and, and someone screaming at you as you ride off with your push bike with them. But, so the best, best yabbies are always from someone else's dam and preferably someone who's got a really good dam that's really good and, and may not necessarily be someone who deserves to have those yabbies in your own opinion. Ah. Yeah, so that's like the, the secret sauce of yabbies is... is a, someone else's. B, they're a bit of a bastard. <laughs> and C, and C, it's the best dams are the ones that are really hard to get to. And particularly, you know, it, it's it's a bit like when you know that someone's got a dam and they love their Yabby Dam. And they actually, you know, there's some guys will go to the point where they'll actually um, put like chook pellets and that sort of stuff in there just to make sure the Yabbies are fed up and what have you. But when, you, when you've got someone that you know that A, loves their dam, B, looks after their dam and, you know, maintains it and and really sort of focuses on trying to get the best out of their dam and see, you know, that they would be really, really upset if they knew that you were taking yabbies from their <laughs> dam. And that. So that's just like the perfect confluence of ingredients to make yabbing A, fun and make those yabbies taste delicious. So we've got a, yeah, we've got a, um, a checkered history. I'm probably I'm too fat, old and slow to be able to do it these days, but... Uh, <laughs> Back in the day, as a when you first got your license, probably one of the first nighttime jobs you did would always go park up somewhere. And those amongst us that have been there, we all know where one of the best dams was, and it may have been sort of down towards the bottom end of Sunder on the way to Rolling Flat. And we'll just leave it at that. But <laughs> yeah, there I was always the the, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people know that dam. I mean, we were doing him a service because yabbies are a, they release a hormone. And like every yabby will release a hormone. So the more yabbies that are in a dam, the, the higher that concentration or that hormone in the water will get and that will actually regulate their breeding. So by removing the yabbies, we're encouraging breeding and we're encouraging yabbies to, to grow. So that was 
Yeah, it was a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's a valuable a community yeah, I mean, we should have been invoicing it, really. <laughs> yeah, so the, uh, this one particular night, I just remember, yeah, parking up, and unfortunately we had the only vehicle available to us to steal that particular night, because that's, like, this is pre-sort of owning our own, was uh, Dad had this poo-brown <laughs> Volvo, and it was like 1960. 73, 72, 74, somewhere around there, but it was actually had fuel injection. It was, yeah, it was, a, it was very ahead of its time, but it was poo brown, and it was like driving a big iron water bed because you know you pull up and like for the next sort of minute and a half, two minutes, and just <laughs> anyway. So we used to, and this thing weighed like it was about two and a half ton for a sedan, and we'd, so we'd have to push it backwards out of the driveway. And, then, and it was automatic too, so yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd have to sort of like let it get right down around the corner because otherwise... Because we it, started it. Yeah, well, the, the, the exhaust on it was pretty rooted, so when you started it up, it had a very distinct noise, so we'd have to wait until we'd, we'd freewheel it, but because it had power steering and, and everything like that, yeah, it was getting around that bottom corner... <laughs> and the power brakes and everything like that. So, yeah, getting around that bottom corner and then you'd have to... Because if you turn left and went past where the old tank farm used to be behind Hoffman's, if you started it there, those tanks were like just make like a massive buddy amplifying system for the noise of this thing starting up. So you always had to swing around to the right, but it, it was still a dirt corner then, so you'd a bit of a power slide. And then once you had the trees in between, you could start it up. So anyway, so we've taken the Pooh Brown, Poo Brown Volvo and we've pulled up... Um, along a, a road that was... It was a, a bit of a damp night. We've pulled up on, on a road that is now bitumen, but back in the day used to be this Bay Bisky piece of crap. And then you'd have to jump, go across the train line and then go up over the bank and, and get into the dam. And yeah, this particular night, we had all the nets set, everything like that, all good. And I don't know, we were just, you know, had the torch and we're checking out and we were just lying there... You know, it wasn't too bad of a night. It was pretty cold, but, you know, it was just a bit of dampness. So we're just lying there looking at the stars, thinking, oh, this is a pretty cool night. Yeah, it's all right. Uh, go and check the nets in a minute. And then we just hear, what are you boys doing? And it was just like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> So we've just, like, done a piss bolt. <laughs> and then we've gotten into the into the poo ground bowl. They cranked her up. And we've taken off and, in our panic, have headed towards Tanunda directly on this particularly Bay of Bisky Road. Made it about... I don't know, maybe 300 yards and just up to the axles. <laughs> Stuck in the mud. Stuck in the mud. And then, uh, yeah, so then we're just like, oh, well, we're not going anywhere. So abandoned the car doors open and just kept running. <laughs> and I subsequently found out afterwards it wasn't even the owner of the dam. It was just someone else who was there poaching as well. <laughs> so, yeah, so the next day we had to go and, yeah, had to go get... Get a mate with a tractor, the drag <laughs> the, the poo car. brown, dig out the poo yeah, brown Volvo, poo, pull it backwards out of the out of the bay of Bisky and what have you, and and, and retrieve our nets. So yeah, but yeah, it was um, we didn't get to eat yabbies that night. But it was just <laughs> yeah, because you're just so keyed up waiting for the owner to come and <laughs> give you some shit, and then it was someone else poaching. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, look, you you know we know very well how fabulous your small goods are. Um, we've talked a bit about. Now that's your... not a euphemism. <laughs> yes, that's not... no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> You're creative in terms of design, and obviously winemaking is also an outlet, I suppose. So it's oh, nice. <laughs> winemaking is also an outlet. <laughs> yeah, for, for creativity. Would yeah, you okay. would you agree with that? So yeah, let me finish my sentence. <laughs> See, I told you I'd talk over you. That's okay. <laughs> but anyway, so do you think all of those three are aligned and uh, an outlet for your creativity? Yeah, I think it's. I mean, most winemakers that well, winemakers tend to fall into two sort of streams. There's winemakers that it's about making wine. 
and then there's winemakers that's about being a winemaker. And I think the winemakers that it's about being wine, it's a creative thing. So many of those just love cooking. You know, there's this, you know, they're quite often artistic. You'll see, you know, so many winemakers I know that are, you know, amazing artists or mm. musicians or... I think it the difference between winemaking in a sort of more of a commercial sense where you're, you're making, not to a recipe because it's, it's never to a recipe, but when you're doing it on the big scale versus when you're sort of doing it more for more in a in a way that's more akin to cooking mm. i think those people that are attracted to doing it that way tend to just have that artistic thing running through them so yeah. you know so many of those expressions of of artist artistry and all that sort of stuff yeah it just seems to follow dave we were talking to mark mcnamara about the food story in the barossa and obviously it's quite important to all of us but in your quest for mastery he made reference to the infamous Metwurst Blind Tasting Challenge. Mm-hmm. At the Generations Lunch. At the Generations Lunch. It's your chance now to set the story right. Well, look, all I, all I can say about the whole process is that if you're going to have a competition and you're going to you gotta have same as same, and anyone who slips a plain fucking Metwurst, pardon my French, into a lineup of proper Metwurst deserves a really, really special place in hell. Like if you can't, if you can't take garlic in your Metwurst, don't eat it. Right? <laughs> don't sully my thing. So, yes, it, it wasn't the only reason I didn't pick it, and it still grates on my heart today. Is because it wasn't Metwurst; it was plain. <laughs> so yeah, Benny Radford. Yeah, he's got no taste. So, yeah. I, I still swear he was playing the uh, he was playing the adjudicator. He wasn't it was like all good options games. Yeah, well, that, that was definitely Mark's yeah. comments that uh, you were quite aggrieved that a piece of plain Metwurst had appeared, and obviously nobody eats plain Metwurst, so you can't put that in front of a Barossa. I can't even understand how that stuff would be legal. but it is something that I'm very passionate in fact I've spent the last two years perfecting my own Metwest recipe and we have been fortunate enough to taste that and I must say it's fabulous if you you can smell the aura I'm actually smoking Metwest right at the moment yeah Yeah, you've got an amazing array of of foodstuffs I wasn't (laughs) because I would then have to say I've tasted your small goods (laughs) and that wouldn't be good Uh, but anyway on that note Nothing awkward about that. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, thanks so much, Dave, for coming in today. It's really been an entertaining session, absolutely. And we really appreciate the time you've given us. No worries. My pleasure. Thank you for uh, allowing me to come in.